The U.S. and Cuba have had a complex relationship involving slaves, Jim Crow, and revolution. Coming up next. Welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for October 30th, 2014. I'm Esther Averam. Congrats to Dave Zirin and Etan Thomas for their work every week, especially during this last week, last day of the Fall Fun Drive. Uh, on the collision here on WPFW, your listener-powered station for jazz and justice here in the nation's capital. As you know, since May 1st, on May Day, when we launched this show on the ground, we've been lifting up voices of activists and activism. From Gaza to Ferguson to economic justice to climate justice, we've brought new interviews, voices, and sounds from the streets onto the airwaves here at 89.3 FM. Today, for our fourth and final week of the fall fundraiser, another in-depth conversation with author, historian, activist, our favorite Favorite geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn. The goal for the on the ground show today is five hundred dollars, but I expect to far surpass that. So you can get me started by calling two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine or pledging right on the website wpfw.org. This is our last day, folks, and I thank thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who've helped us pass our goal so far for the fundraiser. But hopefully, we can keep it going today for this last day. If you have friends or family who you know can support the station who and who aren't doing so, call them, email them, text them right now and say, we, you know, we need their support, you know, to keep this treasure of independent, corporate-free, Koch Brothers-free media alive right here in the nation's capital. Now, just for this hour, we are offering as a thank you gift Gerald Horn's critically praised book, Race to Revolution, the U.S. and Cuba During Slavery and Jim Crow, for a tax-deductible donation of $75 to WPFW. The histories of Cuba and the United States are tightly intertwined and have been for at least two centuries. In Race to Revolution, historian Gerald Horn examines a critical relationship between the two countries by tracing out the typically overlooked interconnections among slavery, Jim Crow, and revolution. I don't have many copies, so you can get yours now by calling 202-588-9739. Gerald Horn will be coming up later, but first our headlines. African countries are pledging to ramp up their response to the Ebola outbreak, which has already killed nearly 5,000 people in West Africa, although the toll is likely much higher. The African Union said member states have promised to deploy more than 1,600 health workers. Amnesty International is calling for an investigation of potential human rights abuses in the police crackdown on protests in Ferguson, Missouri. In a new report, Amnesty says police committed violations in the weeks that followed the killing of unarmed teenager Michael Brown by Officer Darren Wilson. In a separate report, the advocacy group Penn American Center calls on the Justice Department to investigate a police crackdown on journalists covering the Ferguson protests. Penn says it compiled more than 50 cases of press freedom violations, culminating in the arrest of 21. The Justice Department has condemned leaks from the grand jury, deciding whether Darren Wilson will face charges in the killing of Mike Brown. 
The department said the leaks are irresponsible and highly troubling and added that there seems to be an inappropriate effort to influence public opinion about this case. The recent disclosures have heightened tensions between the protesters and police, with protesters saying the leaks are part of a broader strategy to prematurely diffuse public discontent ahead of any decision not to indict Wilson. Meanwhile, the St. Louis County Police Department has reportedly stocked up on tear gas, grenades, pepper balls, and plastic handcuffs in anticipation of massive protests when the grand jury reaches its November decision. There are also new reports that the area school superintendent has asked the district attorney to not announce the grand jury decision during school hours, but rather on a Sunday. On the environmental front, the growing tide of tar sands resistance seen in blockades, tree sits, petitions, education efforts, and calls to divest is having a measurable negative impact on the bottom line of the tar sands industry, according to a new report. Published yesterday by the Institute for Energy, Economics, and Financial Analysis, along with Oil Change International, the report finds that tar sands production revenues were down about $30.9 billion from 2010 to 2013. And according to the report, more than half of that lost revenue, roughly $17 billion, can be attributed to the fierce grassroots campaigns that have sprung up throughout North America in the past few years. Colorado and Oregon could soon become the first states in the nation to pass ballot initiatives mandating the labeling of food products containing genetically modified organisms. Earlier this year, Vermont became the first state to approve GMO labeling through the legislative process, but the decision is now being challenged in the courts. Numerous items are already sold in grocery stores containing genetically modified corn and soy, but companies are currently not required to inform consumers. Advocates of Prop 105 in Colorado and Measure 92 in Oregon say GMO foods can be harmful to human health due to pesticide residues and the altered crop genetics. Opponents say the effort to label genetically modified food is overly cumbersome and will spread misinformation. Leading corporations opposing the labeling measures include Monsanto, Kraft Foods, PepsiCo, Inc., Kellogg Company, and Coca-Cola. By some accounts, opponents of labeling have contributed roughly $20 million for campaigning against the proposed laws, nearly triple the money raised by supporters of the initiatives. In Oregon, the fight for GMO labeling has turned into the most expensive ballot measure campaign in the state's history. Also, a small city in Florida has voted for the state's southern counties to succeed due to inaction by state leaders on climate change. Citing the risk posed by rising sea levels, city commissioners in South Miami passed a measure approving the creation of a new state called South Florida, saying that it was a necessity for the very survival of the entire southern region of the current state of Florida. Florida Governor Rick Scott has refused to acknowledge climate change is man-made. He is running against former Governor Charlie Crist in a tight race for re-election. And following up our pre-election special last week, more news about the upcoming midterm elections. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is coming out ahead as the number one dark money spender of 2014, Watchdog Public Citizen revealed in a new report released yesterday. In a record year for dark money expenditures, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is leading the way, reads the report, 
entitled The Dark Side of Citizens United, which is based on data from the Center for Responsive Politics analyzed by Public Citizens U.S. Chamber Watch. The report says that the waves of non-disclosed money flooding elections threaten to dis- disempower and discourage voters, making government less transparent and less accountable. The term dark money refers to funds spent to influence elections by 501c groups such as the Chamber, which are not required to disclose the source of their funds. The U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision opened the door to unprecedented outside spending to influence elections. As we reported last week, 2014 is breaking records in dark money spending on Senate races. Among outside dark money organizations, the Chamber, which is a corporate lobbying group, is the top overall spender on the 2014 congressional elections. As of October 25, 2014, it had spent $31.8 million, with the runner-up being Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS, spending $23.5 million. In addition, the Chamber is the biggest dark money spender in over 80% of the contests it has sought to sway, the report reveals. According to the Chamber, expenditure reports it has poured money into eight of the 10 contests that have attracted the most outside money and 16 of the top spending 20. This includes the North Carolina, Colorado, and Iowa Senate races. Nearly 100% of the money the chamber has spent has gone towards bolstering GOP candidates or opposing Democratic ones, with small amounts put towards opposing certain candidates in Republican primaries where the chamber worked to oppose Tea Party Republicans and others who might not agree with it on issues like government the government shutdown and bailouts, the report states. In other election news, eight people were arrested at a Moral Monday protest in Georgia over the alleged disappearance of 40,000 voter registration records, most of them from people of color. The New Georgia Project has filed a lawsuit against the office of Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, saying about half of the 80,000 voter registration forms it submitted as part of a recent drive do not appear on state rolls. In North Carolina, county boards of election have closed on-campus voting sites across the state, making it harder for students to vote. Students at historically black Elizabeth City State University and Winston-Salem State University will not have on-campus early voting polling locations. North Carolina State University, Duke University, and the University of North Carolina at Charlotte have lost their on-campus sites for early voting and the general election as well. And finally, here in D.C., early voting for Tuesday's election ends on Saturday. Longtime community activist Graylin Hagler and D.C. Ferguson organizer Eugene Perrier are among those running for an at-large seat on the D.C. Council in what is shaping up to be a very competitive race. In addition to voting early, you can vote by mail. You can also still register to vote when you vote. For more information about the election, go to the website for the D.C. Board of Elections, DCBO. O-E-E dot org. That's D-C-B-O-E-E dot org. Or call 202-727-2525. That's 202-727-2525. And those are our headlines. Uh, for this week's culture and media moment and break, I want to be sure to mention three days of heliocentric festivities celebrating the centennial of Sunrise arrival on Earth this weekend. And uh, there are going to be several events, I think starting on Friday, the Cosmic Costume Spectacle and Concert, the Sun Ra Orchestra uh, on 
Saturday, there's an artist talk. On Sunday, there's a raw for WPFW with poets at 6 p.m. Uh, and featuring burnt sugar. So you can get more information at capitalbop.com and along, <clears throat> along came raw, or forward slash along came raw. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the event and some of the proceeds are supporting your station for jazz and justice. So please come out and support the along came raw. And can people also get information here at the station? Um, they can pledge and buy, buy tickets as part of the fundraiser. Okay, but anyway, I definitely want to mention that. So uh, you can call here and, and, and get tickets and uh, support that event. And I also want to go to the 40-day memorial held this past Saturday for Lasana Mack, uh, Pan-Africanist organizer for economic and cultural empowerment, who joined the ancestors in September. Uh, we're going to hear a little from, I think, Black Notes are part of both of these pieces. But in the first piece, there's a, a gentleman speaking who worked with him, worked with Lasana Mack in, in some of his like organizations uh, for economic empowerment, and then followed by uh, just a snippet of Black Notes joined by other musicians at the memorial. It's a beginning. The 40 days is a beginning of how we're going to move forward and how we're going to move with a spirit of cooperation. How we're going to understand that, that new language of cooperation. How, how we're going to move beyond just attending each other's events. We have to move beyond that. We have to move to a point of that we are a community and that we are, that, that we are tied together economically via appeal we are tied together in a way that we can all respond to emergencies. We are tied together how we deal with food. We are tied together how we deal with housing in the D.C. area. Right? This is, this is where he was going. This is what he was pushing. And this is what we have to continue. So for the, the 40 days is only a beginning of where we have to go. Thank you. that was music by members of Black Notes and other musicians at Saturday's Memorial for Lasana Mack, organizer for economic and cultural empowerment who joined the ancestors in September. We're here on Thursday's Community Watching Comment on 89.3 FM WPFW. I'm Esther Verum. 
Well, as the 2016 presidential hopefuls like New Jersey Governor Chris Christie play politics with the Ebola crisis, forcing caregivers who show no symptoms to be quarantined, the island nation of Cuba has sent more than 250 medical staff to West Africa to help combat the record outbreak. That brings the country's total contribution in three hardest-hit countries to more than a third of all foreign medical staff there. Also in the news is the new book, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. Authors Peter Kornbluh and William Leo Legrand use recently declassified documents to expose the secret history of dialogue between the United States and Cuba. Among the revelations are details of how then-U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger considered launching airstrikes against Cuba after Fidel Castro sent troops to support independence fighters in Angola in 1976. In the years that followed, top-secret U.S. emissaries, including former President Jimmy Carter and Nobel Prize-winning author Gabriel Garcia Marquez, worked to normalize relations with Cuba. Of course, President Obama very quietly renewed sanctions against Cuba in September. But the story of what transpires between the United States and Cuba is longer than the period started by the 1959 Cuban Revolution. In his new book, Race to Revolution, author Gerald Horn traces how the histories of both countries have been intertwined for centuries by slavery, Jim Crow, and revolution. He joins us this morning, I think via Skype, right? Oh, by phone? Okay. Good morning, Gerald. Good morning to you. Okay, so um, when we witness what Cuba is doing right now to fight Ebola in Africa, you know, it's amazing to see how the right wing cannot even give them credit for their sacrifice and international aid. You know, even this plague is politicized. But, you know, what I was really thinking about is how what they're doing is in sync with how they supported the frontline states in southern Africa, fighting for independence, and also the the rebels in South Africa as well. You know, so I know you are dealing with so much about the history of Cuba, but, you know, in terms of today, how does such a small, you know, a relatively, you know, not wealthy country, you know, garner these types of resources and, and more importantly, like how do they, why do they take on these responsibilities when so many larger countries don't? Well, with regard to your first question, I think Cuba is able to take on so many responsibilities because Cuba is a socialist country and therefore it does not have a handful of billionaires like George Soros or Bill Gates or the Koch brothers who appropriate billions while millions are rising in poverty. In other words, the wealth that's being created in Cuba is distributed more equitably than the United States of America, and therefore it can be distributed to African countries. They are able to do more in part because Cuba feels that it has a solemn obligation to come to the assistance of African countries, not least because Cuba was a major victim of the unlamented African slave trade. As I discuss in the book, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why you have so many people of African descent in Cuba is because of the manic energy of U.S. slave traders, particularly in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, and beyond, who descended particularly on the Congo River Basin and manacled and handcuffed every African in sight, dragged them across the Atlantic to the island of Cuba, where they then began to toil on tobacco plantations, sugar plantations, coffee plantations, and all the rest. Likewise, there was a thriving trade, slave trade, that is, between Galveston, Texas, and Pensacola, Florida, and Havana, Cuba. 
That is to say that many of the Africans on the island of Cuba once toiled on the North American mainland, once toiled in Texas or Florida. And it goes the other way, too. Some of the Africans who had once toiled in uh, Cuba uh, wound up toiling in Florida and Texas and all the rest. Indeed, as I suggest, there is a high probability that many of the population now designated as African-American actually have relatives, uh, close relatives, in fact, on the island of Cuba. You know, I, I think one of the, uh, the, I don't know whether it's a blurb I was reading about the book or actually a part of the book, they described how Frederick Douglass called Cuba the great Western slave mart of the world. And I, I you know, I, I've been to Cuba a couple times and I, you know, you really feel that in the old Havana part of the island. But I always thought that Brazil was the kind of great Western port for slavery. Um, did Cuba somehow outpace Brazil? Not really. I guess in terms of numbers, Brazil by far had the largest number of enslaved Africans. Now, that's a point you may recall that I talk about in my book, The Deepest South, the U.S., uh, Brazil, and the African Slave Trade. And once again, <laughs> the reason why Brazil has had and has so many Africans is because of the manic energy of the U.S. slave traders. Uh, I think future historians, your grandchildren, in fact, will find it quite baffling and befuddling that on the one hand, the United States is put forward, even by progressive forces, as having this grand revolution in 1776, but thereafter it became the leading slave trade nation on this small planet and has probably been more responsible for more misery of Africans and human beings in general than just about any regime on this small planet. So, yes, uh, Cuba uh, was a major recipient of enslaved Africans, but it was surpassed by far by Brazil. Right. So what what are some of the other aspects of the period of slavery, you know, while, while we're there in that period that kind of tie the United States to Cuba? Uh, you talked about, you know, people going back and forth, which I'm, I'm sure a lot, a lot of us didn't really realize, but how did how did that happen exactly? You know, in terms of was it between Florida and uh, was it between different countries? Like you know, some you know there were also a lot of issues around English, the England um, competing with Spain. So how how did all that happen? Well, first of all, you should know that uh, the state of Texas was once an independent nation. That is to say, the Lone Star Republic, the Republic of Texas, was seceded from Mexico in 1836 precisely because Mexico had moved to abolish slavery. And thereafter, until it was annexed and became a state of the United States of America in 1845, uh, Texas was basically a slave-trading nation. That was its, its major preoccupation and major business. That You found the Lone Star flag, that is to say, Texas flagships off the coast of Africa, off the coast of Brazil, and particularly off the coast of Cuba. That is to say, one of the major reasons why you have so many black people in Cuba is because of Texas slave traders uh, who were sailing into Africa or coming across the Atlantic to Brazil and taking Africans from Brazil to the island uh, of Cuba. Uh, what's curious is, is that uh, Britain, after losing North America, or at least the 13 colonies, uh, to the formation of the United States of America, then reversed feel and became a leader of sorts of the abolition of the African slave trade, and the United States, which supposedly this tribune of liberty and democracy and justice, became the leader of the African slave trade, and then Britain thereafter, particularly in the first few decades of the 19th century, was trying to 
arrest and detain U.S. flagships and Texas flagships that were bringing Africans to Cuba. It's a very curious tale. Hmm. Right. And what kind of no- excuse me? What kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of people who? Uh, we're going maybe from Florida to Cuba or vice versa. You know, how thriving of a business was this? It's a thriving business. I would say the numbers are in the thousands. It's in the height in the late 1830s and 1840s, which is reflected, by the way, in the writings of the great abolitionists. You mentioned Frederick Douglass, uh, who is one amongst many abolitionists who crusaded relentlessly against the African slave trade to Cuba, captained by U.S. slave traders, but also Martin Delaney, who's probably number two in that regard to the hollowed Frederick Douglass. That is to say, Martin Delaney wrote a novel called Blake. Oh, I read that, yeah. Yes, which even to this day might be considered the, the leading novel in the pantheon of novels written by progressive people, people of African descent in North America, which has center, which has at its center a Cuba. That is to say, not only uh, slave rebellions in Cuba, of which there were many, but also this idea that in some ways is being validated in 2014, that it was Cuba that ultimately would lead we Africans in this hemisphere to a kind of justice. I should also say that the history of Cuba during this time is intertwined with the history of Haiti. In fact, it's fair to say that Uh, The way that the United States has tried to strangle the Cuban Revolution since 1959 is mirrored and echoed by the way the United States tried to strangle the Haitian Revolution after 1804. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the United States was largely successful, I'm afraid, in helping to stamp out uh, many of the democratic impulses in the Haitian Revolution, although not altogether. Certainly, its major victory was splitting the island and allowing for the uh, secession of the Dominican Republic in 1844, and therefore weakening Haiti, because the Dominican Republic occupies two-thirds of the island of Hispaniola, Cuba has been able to survive in the 20th century, not least because of solidarity of people like yourself. Okay. I also know that in the book you talk about uh, blacks being crucial to Cuba's initial independence. Um, Can you tell us more about that period? Well, as you probably know, in terms of the struggle against slavery, uh, slavery is not abolished in Cuba until the 1880s, and that struggle against slavery dovetailed with the struggle against colonialism, the struggle against Spanish colonialism. And that struggle is embodied in the figure of Antonio Maceo, who at one time was a hollowed figure even in black America. As, as, as you know, there are a number of black Americans to this very day who carry the name Maceo, including a former sideman for James Brown. For, for example, including the son of Eldridge Cleaver, uh, the former Black Panther leader, for example. And, that, and that, that distinguishes Cuba from the United States, because in the United States, the struggle against slavery in the 18th century did not merge into the struggle for independence from Britain. In fact, they were at loggerheads. They were at odds, which largely helps to explain why people of African descent here in North America have had such a difficult road to hoe for so many centuries and so many decades because the struggle for independence from Britain in many ways was a struggle against abolition of slavery and a struggle to enslave Africans and make sure that they were enslaved, a struggle which we've had to uh, shed blood in order to overcome. Okay. The 
if we look at it on the other side, um, did this transfer of blacks between the United States and Cuba uh, kind of impact the, I guess, the consciousness in both places in terms of people, not only people like Frederick Douglass or Martin Delaney having this knowledge, but, you know, um, you know, enslaved, Af other enslaved Africans having just kind of like a, I don't want to call it like bicoastal knowledge, but kind of just uh, a consciousness of both places and how place, both places were different and how they were feeding each other. Well, I think that's largely true, but certainly that process that you described accelerates after the War of 1898 when the United States ousts Spain from colonial control of Cuba and moves in as the de facto ruler of the island. In order to do so, the United States had to dispatch uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of black soldiers from North America to Cuba to fight in Al Spain. And that begins a new period in terms of black American knowledge and awareness of Cuba. Uh, that is to say that many of these black American soldiers wound up staying on the island. Their descendants still reside on the island. You should also know that the way that racism evolved on the island of Cuba was not the same as it evolved on in the North American mainland, the United States of America. Uh, many black Americans at the time felt that it was easier for them to live in Cuba than in the United States of America. And that's because Cuba had a long history of a so-called free Negro population, whereas the United States was hostile to the concept of free Negroes. That's one of the reasons why the United States colonizationists led by uh, President James Monroe helped to start Liberia. Uh, that is to say, to get rid of all the free Negroes, because the free Negroes were seen as inimical to the project that was slavery. Mm -hmm. But Spain and colonial Cuba were different. And so after the War of 1898, you had a, a large uh, migration of black Americans to the island of Cuba. You had people like Langston Hughes, the uh, great poet of Harlem, uh, who spoke Spanish, of course, and who spent quite a bit of time in Cuba. Paul Robeson, of course, was a friend of Cuba, a friend of Nicolas Guillén, the uh, black Cuban poet, the poet laureate of Cuba. So there was a lot of back and forth. And that's one of the defects that our struggle has suffered. That is to say, since the revolution in 1959 and the U.S. blockade, the illegal embargo, which, by the way, the United Nations just voted 188 to 2 just a few days ago to condemn. But since that illegal embargo and blockade, there has been a wall separating us from Cuba, and I think that's been to our detriment because uh, it has blocked that natural relationship that we've had and has blocked us from international currents, international currents that have been so important in terms of eroding the encrusted conservatism that obtains here on the North American mainland. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm speaking to author and activist Gerald Horn about his book, Race to Revolution, the U.S. and Cuba during Slavery and Jim Crow. And we're in our final day of the fall fundraiser. I think this is like the final day, period, overall, right? And so we are offering this wonderful book uh, for only $75 contribution to as a thank you gift uh, for just a $75 contribution to WPFW Race to Revolution the US and Cuba during slavery and Jim Crow the histories of Cuba and the United States are tightly intertwined and we've been talking about that and you can support 
on the ground and support WPFW by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Or you can pledge right online at WPFW.org. We're going to take a break while you're calling in. I know you must be calling in. Uh, and then we'll be right back with Gerald Horn. Hi there, Tamika Smith, Chief Correspondent in the WPFW Newsroom. I'd like to say thank you for what you've contributed. Because of you, we can bring 24 hours worth of great programming, programs that have become a part of our lives. I can tell you before I actually became a part of the WPFW News team, I was a member first, enjoying salsa on Sundays with Jim and Nancy and listening to the flavors of the Caribbean. I could say with confidence there's no other place in the nation's capital that will bring you the programming that WPFW brings to your life. So again, thank you. Welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averam. If you're just tuning in, that was Chucho Valdez and the Afro-Cuban Messengers with Begin to Be Good on On the Ground this morning. I am joined on the line by author and activist Gerald Horn, and we're talking about his book, Race to Revolution. And... Uh, it's, it has so much, it sweeps across so much history, um, about Cuba and Cuba's relationship to the United States. You know, um, when there's a part in the book where you talk about Cubans, um, how the relative freedom that black Cubans achieved helped bring down Jim Crow in the United States. And I was curious about that because I, you know, just understanding what I do about Cuba, blacks in Cuba were in you know pre-revolutionary Cuba was was subjected to the same kinds of racism and segregationist policies that we had here. So, how did they help us um, bring down Jim Crow here? Well, you may recall in the last pages of the book, I talk about Francisco Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who was the chief lawyer for the NAACP in Florida in the 1950s. You may recall that even though, understandably and justifiably, the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, which catapulted Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. to fame and renown, has received considerable publicity, there was also a boycott, a bus boycott in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. There are all sorts of activities throughout Florida. 
And the chief lawyer for the NAACP was Francisco Rodriguez, uh, who was of Cuban descent. See, the issue is this, that as noted, historically going back to the 1500s in Spanish colonialism, for various reasons that need not detain us here, Spanish colonialism found it necessary to create or allow to exist a free Negro population. That is to say, a free Negro population that was not enslaved, that occupied a so-called middle-class position. And then when those people began to migrate across the Florida Straits to Florida, they came with certain skills, such as the Rodriguez family, that they could then employ on behalf of the beleaguered black American population in the state of Florida. That's the the example that I cite in, in terms of how uh, Cubans, or Cuban-Americans, I should say, uh, helped to break down the walls of Jim Crow. Now, of course, since 1959, uh, even though things are changing, there has been a, shall we say, a shade of anti-communist migration from Cuba to Florida, uh, which has helped to create a bulwark in part for the Republican Party and for conservatism in the state of Florida. But in some ways, that's a historical change. That's one of the reasons we study history, because events change, things change, things don't remain static. Right. So, on the other hand, political developments in this country, uh, you say, help to uh, create conditions that gave rise to the Cuban Revolution. So it was kind of like this continued reciprocal relationship or this, you know, back and forth of energy across the that 90 miles between uh, our countries. So tell me, tell me about how people here, you know, contributed to that, that change, that momentous change in 1959. Well, there was a lot of solidarity on the part of black Americans in particular with Cuba. I mentioned Langston Hughes beforehand. I could have mentioned Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, a name that I'm sure your audience is familiar with because she was in and out of Washington uh, quite a bit, uh, a leading figure in the, the black women's movement uh, who traveled to Cuba more than once and raised up the question of Jim Crow in Cuba. Jim Crow in Cuba, by the way, which was largely, although not exclusively, a product of Euro-Americans who had turned Cuba into a tourist haven after 1898 and insisted upon Jim Crow regulations existing in hotels, on beaches, and elsewhere. And it was black Americans who began to complain and complain loudly about that. Not only Mary McLeod Bethune and Langston Hughes, uh, but you may be familiar with the figure William Patterson, who I wrote a biography of uh, yes. months ago, uh, who was a black American lawyer and communist uh, who was in and out of Cuba quite a bit during the 1930s. In fact, uh, to show you the reciprocity between these two struggles, one of the reasons he was in and out of Cuba is because of his efforts to build committees in Cuba in support of the Scottsboro Nine, that is to say the nine black youth in Alabama mm. who were accused falsely of sexual molestation of two-year-old American women were headed for the death the penalty before the intervention of people like Patterson. But when Patterson was helping to build for the Scottsboro defenders in the island of Cuba, he was simultaneously helping to build radical conjure on the island of Cuba. In fact, one of the things I point out in the book is that even before 1959, Cuba had one of the strongest communist parties in the Americas. It was a communist party that had uh, a substantial black leadership. In fact, indeed, as uh, early or as late as 1947, 
you had uh, members of the black press, the Pittsburgh Courier, in fact, predicting that Cuba would be the first socialist country in the hemisphere. It turned out, turned out that he was off by about 12 years, revolution coming on January 1st, 1959. 202-588-9739 is the number to call on our final day of the fall fundraiser here on uh, on the ground. So that's 202-588-9739 and 1-800-222-9739. You can pledge online on WP at WPFW.org. We are offering Race to Revolution by Gerald Horn. And I have a few quotes from people talking about the book. Um, you know, the one, first one on the back of the book is by Henry Louis Gates, Jr., um, the Alphonse Fletcher University professor at Harvard. He says in his path-breaking book, Gerald Horn reveals how the histories of Cuba and the United States from the slave trade to Jim Crow and the Cold War have always been closer and more turbulent than the 90 miles separating them across the Straits of Florida. Indeed, one cannot possibly understand the journey from bondage to freedom in America without wrestling with its consequences for the peoples of African descent in Cuba. Their story is our story, and thanks to Horn, we can now study its flow in a single and profound narrative. Ricardo, oh, I'm going to totally, Alassane de Casada, former ambassador to Cuba to the United Nations and president of Cuba's National Assembly, calls the book an important intellectual event. Hopefully someone will discover over there, he's talking about over here, in the capital of the empire, these works by Professor Horn, and may they find time to read them. Uh, Ishmael Reed says Gerald Horn is one of our most original historians. 202-588-9739 to support on the ground and to get Race to Revolution. So where do we go next? Well, let me mention one point, uh, if you don't mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, since the holidays are coming up that many <laughs> people celebrate, I'm more than willing to do a personal inscription if you send me the book to a particular individual. I think it would make a very useful gift, uh, a revolutionary gift, in fact for these uh, upcoming holidays, and um, that's something that, uh, of course, I'll subsidize out of my own pocket. Right, okay. So I'm so thankful for that generous offer, and I know that listeners really loved that offer uh, a couple weeks ago for the other book, Counter-Revolution. So hopefully we can um, get some people to take you up on that offer, 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. And you know, um, because this is Community Watching Comment, you know, we always take calls. So um, we do have a caller. So let's, let's, let's hear from our caller today. Good morning. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Uh, Shakir, calling from Washington, D.C. Go ahead. Come yeah, on. I, I, I read a book uh, last year written by Carlos Moray, uh, who was a black Cuban who grew up in Cuba, uh, grew up in Cuba and who later moved to New York. Uh, he later became a close confidant of Malcolm X. But he talked about the real rigid racism that existed uh, following the, di the, the disposing of Batista, uh, and it, it actually existed under Castro's Cuba. Uh, and uh, it was um, minimized in the interest of uh, the, um, a class struggle. And so I wanted to know if this caller could comment on this racism that existed under Castro's rule, 
And some say this is one of the reasons why Robert F. Williams, the uh, black American who had fled to Cuba, this is one of the reasons why he became disenchanted with uh, the situation in Cuba and later left and moved to China. Okay. So, um, Gerald, do you want to tackle that? I mean, oh, sure. Yeah. sure. I deal with that in, in the concluding pages of the book. I mm-hmm. mean, when we elect uh, you, Esther, as mayor of Washington, D.C., and yeah. Esquia as president of the United States, I dare say that the question of racism and white supremacy will not disappear magically with our progressive forces coming to power. I'm afraid that the legacy of the past continues to haunt the living. And certainly that has been the case to a degree in Cuba. However, I will say, as Nancy Morajon, the great Cuban contemporary poet, has said, that you have to look at the whole picture. The whole picture would include this complication that we have not had in the United States of America. That is to say that there is this ethos in Cuba, historically, certainly since the U.S. intervention of 1898, that, quote, we're all Cubans. This was the case before 1959. And as a result, you've had this ethos which has tended to suggest that uh, any sort of discrimination against people of African descent is something that uh, does not necessarily need to be confronted. That was a pre-1959 phenomenon. It has been confronted since 1959. I don't think you can really understand the dispatching of hundreds of medics to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, the dispatching of thousands of soldiers to southern Angola to defeat the apartheid army, which leads, of course, to Raul Castro being one of the few heads of state invited to speak at Nelson Mandela's funeral in December 2013. I don't think that you can look at that history and then, uh, on the other hand, conclude somehow that Cuba is on the level of the United States when it comes to racism and white supremacy. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's it's important. I was really interested in this conversation to talk about how the two countries have dealt differently, you know, with the issues of race, you know, property and political power. And I think that that's one of the things. I mean, the times that I've gone to Cuba and it's it's been, you know, to, you know, as an artist to go and, you know, participate in arts festivals there and uh, and as a journalist to go and, and write about Cuba. And, you know, what I've been really struck by is how the tourism industry, which they've kind of needed to ramp up to survive, has impacted the the issue of race in in the country. For example, in a lot of the tourist areas, uh, you find mainly white or light skinned Cubans working in the in the facilities and they're able to get tips, they're able to get, you know, fairly good paying jobs and in proximity to tourists and, you know, primarily European tourists. But that has, you know, fomented a lot of uh, uh, race-based animosity in the country. I don't know if you've, you know, experienced that or, you know, looked into that issue in terms of your own research. Well, sure. It's just like, for example, if you go to Cuba today, if you go down to Miami, you'll see a very interesting scene on these short flights to Havana. What you'll see is a number of what might easily be described as Euro-Cuban or Euro-Cuban Americans uh, who have boxes upon boxes of items that they're bringing to their relatives in the island. What I'm trying to suggest is that because of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow on the island of Cuba, it created a situation where the Euro-Cubans tended to have more wealth, more property, more income than the Afro-Cubans. 
and despite affirmative action that has led to the creation of many Cuban medics and doctors, some of whom are now serving in West Africa fighting Ebola, that legacy has yet to be overcome. It certainly would be easier to overcome without the, uh, the blockade, uh, but that is something that I'm afraid does not seem to be in the offing as we speak. Now, I have another caller, but what I really want is another caller to the fundraiser line, 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739, or you can pledge at WPFW.org. I have someone to thank. I want to thank Stephanie Rones in Northeast D.C., I believe, uh, for calling in. Northeast is in the house representing today. Uh, for your very, thank you so much, Stephanie, for your very generous pledge to support on the ground today. And you can do the same. You can join Stephanie. Don't, you know, I haven't heard from Northwest too much during the drive. Don't let Northeast beat you out. So this is our last day, folks. So Northwest, Southwest, Southeast, Maryland, you know, College Park, Silver Spring, Bethesda, Hyattsville, Bowie, you know, Virginia, Arlington, you know, call in. 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or pledge online at WPFW.org. And so now I'll take the next caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hello, my name is R.G. I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Good morning. Uh, Yes, good morning. Uh, Glad to see you have your own show and uh, revere your collaborations with... uh, uh, Ms. Uh, uh, Brown, Avery Brown. So, oh, at any rate, yeah. At any rate, to the professor, uh, also revere him quite much. <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, uh, Professor Horn. Lately, I've heard uh, allegations that Cuba has had uh, and had uh, historically had uh, a role in African liberation, either by finance or uh, other uh, exploits of uh, support. Could you elucidate uh, that? Um, and I can't recall the exact country recently because my mind's a bit foggy, but it was in the in the news and I believe in uh, one of your other appearances, possibly on uh, Sojourner Truth, that Cuba was in fact a uh, progenitor to uh, uh, the dissolution of, if not the dissolution of slavery, to uh, more contemporaneous uh, African uh, liberation and civil rights. Well, you are correct with regard to African liberation. It starts off in the early 1960s, shortly after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, when you have uh, Cubans who are in close solidarity with the Algerian revolution, uh, revolutionaries. Uh, that is to say, the Algerians who are fighting French colonialism in a very bitter struggle, uh, which you may know from watching, for example, the film The Battle of Algiers, which uh, is certainly well worth watching. But when people raise that issue, most of the time they're referring to Southern Africa, what I just made reference to. That is to say, the solidarity with Angola uh, after the MPLA, the ruling party to this day in Luanda, Angola, uh, kicks out the uh, Portuguese. Uh, they are being besieged on all sides, not least by U.S.-sponsored terrorists and apartheid South Africa-sponsored terrorists, and the Cubans sent thousands of troops there to help them uh, fight that scourge and then go on to participate in what amounts to the liberation of Namibia. And that sets the stage, of course, for the first democratic elections in South Africa in the spring of 1994. Uh, There was a fear amongst the apartheid rulers in Pretoria 
that after the Cubans defeat the apartheid army in league with their comrades in southern Africa in the Battle of Quito Cunovale in 1988, there is a fear in Pretoria, apartheid Pretoria, that the Cubans might march on to Pretoria, as the song goes, and forcibly expel the apartheid rulers. Uh, and rather than subject themselves to that indignity and perhaps death, uh, they become more susceptible to sweet reason and decide to negotiate uh, with a bit more flexibility, which then, of course, leads to talks uh, culminating in the election of Nelson Mandela as the first democratically elected president. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, thorough response to RG, and thanks, RG, for calling. Uh, so, you know, I have to kind of wind down. I have another person to thank, and I want to thank Orme's Temple. And Orme's Temple is going to pick up uh, a copy of Race to Revolution and you can join uh, our caller by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 WPFW.org and uh, so Stephanie I'm thanking Stephanie this morning I'm thanking Ormes uh, I want to thank you and I can do that if you call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or pledge online. I only have $110 to go to make my goals this morning. And that's like one person, you know, or a couple people calling to pick up the book. And I'll, I'll make it. So you can be the one uh, to help me make the goals today. 202-588-9739. And, you know, in these final moments, Gerald, I wanted to know, um, you know, I find it difficult actually to understand the U.S. relationship to countries like Cuba and Venezuela, you know, in 2014. I mean, what does this country stand to gain by kind of holding on to these like Cold War and I, I feel like colonial imperialist attitudes? You know, does the United States do the does the ruling class here think that they can actually like return Cuba to the days of being like a, this like uh, banana republic and like giant casino and brothel. I mean, what what do they stand to gain by holding on to these attitudes? Well, yes, there are those who, who do in fact hold that belief. And they also feel that Cuba is a linchpin in this progressivism in Latin America, culminating, of course, as you know, with the re-election of Emo Morales as president of Bolivia and Dilma Rousseff as president of uh, Brazil, and the continued uh, struggles of Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, uh, succeeding Hugo Chavez. And as Washington sees it, if they can weaken Cuba, they can weaken Latin American progressivism. And if they can weaken Latin American progressivism, what that basically means is that they can strengthen their stranglehold here in North America. One of the problems is is that because of, I'm afraid, the weakness of the U.S. left, it gives the U.S. ruling elite these uh, delusions that they can do to the U.S. left. They can do to the Latin American left what they've done to the U.S. left. And I think that that inevitably uh, causes problems for them because it's not going to be easy to put it mildly, to do to the Latin American left what they succeeded in doing to our movement here. Wow. Well, I uh, see popped up on my screen here that I only have $10 left to make my goal. I'm not sure who else called. I don't see who to thank, but maybe that will pop up soon. But I that will do it, uh, though, you know, we're kind of running out of time here on the Thursday's edition of Community Watch and Comment. And I'm your host, Esther Verman. I want to thank my 
guest today, author and activist Gerald Horn. And uh, thank you so much, Gerald. For well, I think you have the major goal because the postage that I use to <laughs> mail these books to subscribers will be more than $10 for sure. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, I want to thank Anonymous calling from Prince Frederick, Maryland. He's a new member. Can you hit the bell for me, Mike? Okay, thank you. So thank you, thank you to Anonymous calling from Prince Frederick, Maryland. And, uh, wow, I see... Okay, so I, so I want, I want to th- I thank Mike, I thank Gerald, and thank you so much for listening and calling in and for pledging, which you can still do at 202-588-9739. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. And remember, November 9th will mark three months since Darren Wilson shot dead Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and still no arrest. And remember to vote. Early voting is happening in the district through Saturday. We have some progressive candidates committed to social justice on the ballot. Let's support them. Now stay tuned for Askia Muhammad with the news, followed by Dr. Nick on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Raise your voice. Peace.